Welcome. Thank you so much for joining the Murthy Law Firm teleconference series. Today's topic is H-1B cap cases for the fiscal year 2012. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm, and I have with me two of my brilliant, fantastic lawyers from the H-1B department, attorney Chris Drynan, with over 13 years' experience doing immigration law, and Alyssa Klein, several years prior to coming to the firm and been with the firm a few years. I'm sure some of you have had the opportunity to interact with both Chris and Alyssa. So hopefully we're going to have a fabulous discussion to go over some of the issues that you're familiar with, touch upon some new topics and new issues, including the H-1B registration, and then wrap it up with useful guidance to help you plan uh, as we're approaching. uh, And actually, we're in the throes, I guess, of filing the April 1st cases. Um, Okay, so... I guess the big question is, why on earth do we have this H-1B cap and how does it work? Well, uh, by way of background, we never had an H-1B cap issue till the Immigration Act of 1990 when the H-1B cap was first introduced and set at the 65,000 number. And I remember at the time that they set it, they actually thought that they wouldn't even need maybe 10 or 15 of the H-1B cap numbers. And so when Lamar Smith or one of those other anti-immigration senators and legislators introduced it, I remember people thought, we'll never come. We'll throw a number out there that will never, ever be reached. And guess what? It was the song of the, the swan's last song, as they say, because then came the technology revolution and all of these numbers started to get used up, as you know, in the very beginning of the fiscal year, except in the last couple of years. Out of these 65,000, we have 6,500, which are kept aside for citizens of Chile and Singapore. And then, and on top of that, as we know, there's an extra 20,000 for individuals who have completed a U.S. master's degree, thanks to our wonderful lobbying efforts of the NAFSA, the National Association of Foreign Students Association, the National Organization for the Foreign Students, and the whole university lobbying facilities. So that's like this broad overview. And I'm going to have Chris answer the more narrow question or the detailed question about when exactly should an employer plan to start filing an H-1B cap subject case? And how does this whole timing thing work, Chris? Well, the main thing you have to remember here, Sheila, is that uh, H-1B cap numbers become available uh, based on the federal government's fiscal year, which starts every year October 1st. So this year's uh, H-1B caps, would be for, which would be for fiscal year 2012, are available October 1st, 2011. And that would be the earliest start date for any H-1B petition. Uh, you can file an H-1B six months in advance of your start date, and you cannot file it any earlier than that. Uh, therefore, even if you get your H-1B approved before October 1st, it's not going to start till October 1st if it's subject to the cap. Uh, that's the main thing you have to remember. Okay, but that. which employer on their earth is going to wait for six months to start? I mean, that sounds almost unreasonable to tell a company, you can't uh, file now, spend thousands of dollars now, and then I can't really start working for six months. So how are these employees working then? Well, a lot of them are working in other statuses. They might have what's called optional practical training mm-hmm. if they're students, the uh, which is the most common scenario we mm-hmm. see. And typically employers are willing to wait if, it's a, if we're talking about a valuable employee that they really want to have come work for them. Okay, sounds good. So as of this time, the cap is open. We're in early April right now, and the cap cases are being filed. Um, So that's fabulous. So, Melissa, let's jump to you now. What are the different types or kinds of H-1B beneficiaries that are either exempt from from the H-1B cap? 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, in general, if somebody has never had an H-1B before, they are going to be subject to the cap, and they are going to be held to this mm-hmm. pretty strict timeline of an October 1st start date. Um, however, there are people who have had H-1Bs before mm-hmm. that would also be filed under a cap. Um, one example is if somebody was in the U.S. previously in H-1B, had left the U.S. for at least one continuous year, and now they're eligible to refile and start those six years all over again. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's a situation where maybe we don't want to wait for the October 1st, if that person has time left of their six original years, then they're free to go ahead and, and just start back up where they left off and, and use the remaining time. Um, and you also mentioned exemption, and that's an employer qualification. It has to do with if the employer is in a certain type of nonprofit or government research organization, or if the, the person would be employed at or by universities and their nonprofit affiliates. But there's actually been a recent um, update from USAS that they're actually reviewing their policy on university affiliations. So it's important to closely examine if an employer says that they've been cap exempt before, maybe that has to be looked at again. Uh, to see if it's best to file them as cap exempt or if they are going to be cap subject moving forward. And we're still waiting for more updates from USCIS on this policy. Okay, so the one area that we're somewhat flexible about, they're trying to either clamp down or do something with it, doesn't look good from just the trends that have been going on from the beginning of 2010 until now. So let's hope that it's all in a good place. Um, also, what about the physicians? We have physicians who've obtained waivers through the Conrad IGA programs. Right, right. These individuals are cap exempt, um, not like the employers where it's based on the employer and their type of business, but this is more to do with the individual applicant. But that's also a very good example. Okay, sounds great. So thank you very much, Alyssa. So that was helpful. Chris and Alyssa have given us. A, let me t- describe briefly on the specific requirements, which most of you are hopefully familiar with if you've been filing H1 cases. Uh, the requirements in order to qualify for an H-1B petition. Generally, an H-1B specialty occupation requires at least a bachelor's degree or a higher degree or the equivalent in the specific field. And unlike the green card where you can't combine different years of education for the H-1, the nice thing is if you've had a three-year BCom or three-year bachelor's of science and mathematics and the two years, you can actually combine those two education So because it's the equivalent of the field. Um, and you must uh, possess this education at the time of filing the petition. However, the very fact that the beneficiary has a bachelor's degree or higher does not automatically make the position a specialty occupation. And a common example is just because my fabulous receptionist may have a bachelor's degree doesn't mean that all receptionists are entitled. In fact, quite clearly, the Department of Labor says certain positions do not qualify as a specialty occupation, and a fabulous, brilliant receptionist with a bachelor's degree would not qualify in that H-1 position. So it generally it's doctors, lawyers, engineers, um, and certain specialties, whether it's technologies, you know, certain kinds of technologies. Uh, but the common, the most common mention in the statute regulation, doctors, lawyers, engineers. Um, also, if the, bat- if the position requires a bachelor's degree in any field, then it's not considered a specialty. So, for example, to be an English teacher, you have to have a bachelor's degree in English literature, or English language, or in teaching. Uh, so it must be a degree in the specific field related to the duties to be performed. And if the beneficiary does not have the actual physical diploma at the time of filing, then the, at the minimum, the person is required to obtain a letter from the school's registrar or dean to verify 
that this H-1B candidate has completed all of the requirements for the degree and that the person is merely awaiting the actual physical diploma. Okay, so that's like, what's the qualifications? Now, when do you think, Chris, the employer should plan or start preparing for the H-1Ks? Well, this is a very important question, Sheila. Um, it's absolutely vital to, to plan ahead uh, when you're talking about filing an H-1B. Uh, you have to remember that filing an H-1B is a process. This is not a situation where you can prepare a form and file it the next day necessarily. There's assembling documents, and there's some built-in delays. Uh, for example, with an H-1B, you have to first get a what's called a labor condition application approved by the Department of Labor. That, in and of itself, takes uh, up to a week, and that's a built-in delay. There's really typically nothing you can do about that. So you have to, uh, you so have to take that into account. So if wants to fly right away, they can't? Normally that's going to be impossible unless mm -hmm. they already happen to have uh, an LCA in the right job and, and in the right geographical location. So they could have filed a blank LCA for a bunch of people and used that then? If that's sometimes possible. Okay. They might have an LCA that's available. Uh, that's not something we see that often, but mm -hmm. that's certainly something you can consider. Okay. Um, another thing you have to remember is uh, we can never predict how long you're going to have CAP members. Uh, the past few years... Uh, They've been available well into the year, and it's not been that much of an issue. But you have to remember that uh, the filing process of an H-1B So that's the silver lining in the horrible economic That's true. Down. That's the one benefit of a bad economy is mm -hmm. that we have H-1B numbers for much longer than we have in the past. Mm -hmm. um, I can certainly remember when these have been gone the first day that, they, that you could file. Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily the good old days, but <laughs> something like that. Mm -hmm. Another thing you have to remember, right now H-1Bs are really getting increased scrutiny from USCIS. Um, these used to be relatively easy applications to do, not the case anymore. Um, particularly uh, when you talk about situations where you're putting a worker at a third-party site, what we would call an end-client location. Um, these get very, very uh, high level of scrutiny from USCIS, and that's been uh, really the theme for the past uh, year or so, a little bit longer than that in regards to H-1Bs. Uh, lots of documentation, very stringent requirements. And unfortunately, I think most of our clients are very familiar with the ridiculous RFEs and the convoluted pages and pages of information and the employer-employee relationship, that whole nine yards that really started, I guess, the downfall, the freefall from the January 8, 2010 USCIS memo. That's correct. Memo. That's correct. Um, and now, of course, we're us at Murthy Law Firm, we're very experienced in dealing with this. Uh, we know how to deal with these H-1B requirements. We do many H-1Bs here. Uh, we can certainly help employers and employees uh, to successfully compete the pro complete the process, and we can provide uh, the necessary guidance uh, as it goes along. Sure, and a lot of times we get called on just after a denial or after an RFE is issued, and a lot of times we are able to uh, respond effectively, but sometimes we're stuck with what was submitted initially in the original filing, and that makes it much more difficult. So even if you go to an, a most amazing, brilliant lawyer, there's only that much that the lawyer can try to respond if the underlying petition had inherent flaws or problems in the initial filing. So, Alyssa, let's come back to you. Will the beneficiary be able to change status to an H-1B in, within the U.S. itself? For example, if the optional practical training, as often happens, because they start in the summer around May or June, it expires in May or June of this year, but they can't legally, as Chris just explained to us, they aren't even allowed to start working officially till October the 1st on H-1 status. So... What, what can they do? What can right. You know, again, we're dealing with that fixed October 1st start date. And uh, fortunately, a number of years ago, um, we did see a change, and we're able to now have people who are here in F1 
but otherwise have their OPT expiring in the summer be able to stay through October 1st. Um, you know, a, a, an example would be somebody who, say, graduates in May, has their OPT for a year until the following May or June, um, and what are they going to do between June and October 1st? Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately, there is CapGap. And that was from April 2008? Yes, it was a few mm-hmm. years ago, right. Mm-hmm. And now there are a few steps that people can take to ensure that somebody will be eligible to take advantage of this great benefit. Employment's not interrupted. People don't have to travel and come back. Um, but we have to be careful that the H-1B petition is filed before the status expires or the mm-hmm. OPT expires. We also have to make sure that we're asking f- specifically for a change of status in the petition, and we're asking for an October 1st start date. So while you're filing a petition on April 1st, you know, you can't ask for anything past October 1st, but as the cap stays open, it may be possible to file for a start date after October 1st, but that is going to eliminate somebody's possibility for cap gap extension. So we do have to always make sure to ask for an October 1st start date. Just so that's unusual. So I guess a lot of employers and employees, individuals may not realize that because they may say, well, I have time and I haven't filed it till November mm-hmm. or till whatever, you know, with the start, I can right. start with, they start in November, but you're saying unless we put October 1, it's not going to. Exactly. Because the cap gap was, was specifically put into place for that gap in time between the end of status and the start of the, the fiscal the year of October 1st. Wow. So it, it's important. And also something to be aware of is, you know, if everything goes through properly and it's approved, great, your employee can stay here, they can continue to work, uh, and their status should automatically change to H-1B on October 1st. Um, However, if it's denied or if it's revoked, that cap-gap benefit is gone. And the person, if they are in that cap-gap period pursuant to a pending petition, you know, may have to leave at that time. Mm-hmm. So things can happen down the road, which, which mm-hmm. can impact their status. Mm-hmm. Um, and something else to, to keep in mind is because it's this, I've, I see it almost as a Band-Aid, really, mm-hmm. to, to fix that gap in time. You don't get an EAD card. Mm-hmm. There's no document issued with an official approval of employment authorization. So if somebody's in a cap-gap period, they can't leave and come back they would have to wait for October 1st. So it's important to keep travel in mind, mm-hmm. uh, something else people have to consider. But it is a great benefit to allow, again, continuity of business and work uh, in, you know, when you're dealing with these timelines. Okay. And I know that I think there was one other like, little issue where they said that um, if the student is in OPT, then the OPT work authorization is extended until September 30th. Right. But if they're no longer on OPT and they, they're within the 60-day grace period... Right. The student may continue to remain in the U.S. until October 1st, but is not allowed to work. Exactly, exactly. So, again, they can stay here so they don't have to travel, leave, wait for a visa abroad. So it is a great benefit, you know, more so probably to the employee at this stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the employee cannot simply work without getting paid. It is a non-employment period. So, And these are really pretty complex issues that right. it's probably advisable to discuss it either with a company lawyer or contact us at the Murthy Law Firm. You have our email, you have our website, you have our contact information. It's murthy.com, law at murthy.com, whatever. You know, you, you know how to get hold of us. But really, sometimes some of these can become very tricky issues, especially if there's sudden travel or what have you that's, requ- that's required. So we'll get into a little bit of a procedural issue now. We'll just quickly go over, and Chris will help us with this, the different fees to keep in mind, because, again, we know that the H1s are getting more RFEs, more delays, more denials, 
but the fees seem to keep increasing. Everything else is slower in processing, but the fees keep going higher and higher. So can you quickly go over some of that? Because I know it gives me a little heart attack. If I had to file hundreds of these, it would scare the living daylights out of me. Can't imagine our poor technology companies barely making any profits and having to spend almost all of their profits in filing fees, which then ends up often not even getting approved. That's absolutely true, Sheila. These fees only go up. They never go down. And I think I could write an entire article trying to explain the H-1B filing fees because Congress basically keeps tacking on additional fees for various different uh, different uses, and it's, it's gotten very complicated. Um, but I'll try to unravel this a little bit. Um, there's a $325, which we call the base filing fee, uh, which you normally, almost everyone has to pay for an H-1B. Uh, there's a $500, what's called the anti-fraud fee, which is supposed to go to fraud prevention efforts. That should be paid by the employer. We always strongly recommend that the employer pays that. Uh, there's also what's called the training fee, um, which must, by statute, be, play, be paid by the employer. Um, it's $1,500 uh, if you have more than 25 employees or $750 if you have 25 or less employees. Uh, there's a new fee. It's called the border protection fee, which is, uh, amazingly enough, $2,000, which applies, thankfully, only to companies that have uh, 50 more employees and where 50% of those employees are working on H-1B or L-1 which is another uh, form of non-immigrant work visa. Um, now, there may be some exemptions from some of these fees if you're filing an extension uh, extension of an H-1B. Sometimes uh, you don't have to pay all these fees necessarily. Uh, the other thing I want to quickly touch on is what's called the premium processing fee, which... But it's really like a penalty fee. It's like penalizing an employer that's hiring 50 or more, uh, that has that's large enough, that has 50 or more, and 50% of the employees are on H-1B or L1. It, it really, it's really like saying, go find some U.S. SIT workers who can do this job. It really is a penalty, Sheila. Mm-hmm. It it's, was clearly directed basically at the IT industry. And that's the one that just got started from like a couple months ago in, in the fall of 2010. That's correct. So mm-hmm. we've been uh, struggling with that a little bit. I mm-hmm. think we, we've uh, understand it at this point, but it is, it is certainly there mm-hmm. for some employers. Mm-hmm. Um, the premium processing fee a lot of people are going to be familiar with, but I think there are a lot of misconceptions about it. Uh, it's $1,225. Um, it basically puts your, your processing of your H-1B on an expedited track. Um, now, it's a way to obtain a decision faster, but it doesn't give you any advantage in terms of the cap. Some people think you have a better chance of getting a cap number if you use premium processing. Not true. Uh, you have an equal chance of getting a cap number whether you use premium processing or the standard processing track. Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with it. Um, the other thing to remember, it might get you a very quick approval, but it doesn't change when you can start working. You're still tied to that October 1st start date. Premium processing does not change that. Uh, another thing that you can remember is you can file a case, normal processing, and later do what we call an upgrade. Uh, you can pay the premium processing fee at that time, at any time, and upgrade it to the, to the premium processing service uh, if you want a quicker approval. Okay. I guess the only uh, downside with that is if there's a spouse uh, that's on F-2, then the USCIS may not, may or may not tack on the spouse's cases in an upgrade, whereas if we file it premium from the beginning, then there's a better chance that both the parties or all of the, the entire family will be sort of be able to take advantage of the premium processing part of the process. That's true. They should all be included, but if you upgrade it afterwards, it doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always happen. Okay. 
Uh, and I know we've talked uh, briefly in the two-part teleconference series we had on the entire issue of the somewhat new, we call it new, but now it's recent, deemed export question, which became effective from last month, uh, or a couple months ago, from February of 2011, on the revised I-129 form on what we call deemed exports. Uh, so it's when a software company or any business or any employer, in effect, even though you're not actually physically exporting a product or a service, when you use a foreign worker to to deal with certain uh, technology that is considered either source code or of certain specific kind, then you're deemed to have exported to that person's nationality or citizenship the item for which you are required to get a Department of Commerce license. So while this is a somewhat new question on the form, remember that this licensure requirement has always existed for decades and it's been regulated by the Department of State and the Department of Commerce and not by the USCIS. All that the new question really does is ask the employer to confirm with respect to technology or technical data that the petitioner will release or otherwise provide access to the beneficiary uh, only if they've obtained the required license or that they're exempt from the license um, and that the employer has in fact reviewed the EAR or the ER, which is the Export Administration Regulations, and the ITAR, which is the International Traffic in Arms Regulations, uh, and the petitioner has determined whether or not a license is required and if the license is required, then it has obtained the license before providing the foreign worker, the H-1B employee, access to the controlled technology or technical data. Um, generally, if the employee will be working at a third-party client site, then the client site is respond. Then that client, the third-party client, is responsible for obtaining the license. However, if you are the H-1B petitioning employer or petitioning company, you must notify the end client that its employee is a foreign national, that this contract or consultant is a foreign national, so that the third-party end client may actually take the necessary steps to secure the license, because if they are clueless, they might just assume it's a foreign a U.S. citizen instead of a foreign national. Um, we suggest that you consult with a qualified export control attorney if you have questions pertaining to this issue. Okay, Alyssa, so, I mean, I know we've touched upon this. We've done this in two-part series, so it is a fairly convoluted and complex issue. Alyssa, coming back to you, what is the on new online? Now, besides the export control issue, we have a new online registration for H-1B cap cases. And, uh, you know, it do is, does it apply for this cap season? Right, lots of changes, lots mm -hmm. of changes. It actually is not in effect now. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is a proposal. It's open for comment. It is possible they could implement it as an interim rule moving forward, uh, but right now it's not something you have to do. Essentially what it's going to do is eliminate the physical, initial physical filing of cap cases on April 1, and it's going to institute a first step of online registration. So nobody is going to be submitting cap cases until they've submitted their registration online, uh, it's been accepted as a res registration and then subsequently been notified by CIS that they have a cap number and can go ahead and, and file their petition. So instead of everybody filing 
at once, uh, it's going to be a little more controlled and regulated from USCIS's side. Um, you know, a few things that, that they've come out with in this proposal is, uh, you know, is, is that there is going to be a, a finite window of time in which the, the employer is going to be given to file the petition after they're notified of this. Um, and they're also going to have to register for each cap case they plan to file, meaning they have to identify their employee. And what this also means is these are not transferable. It's one registration per employee that you want to sponsor. Uh, in addition, if it is the petitions ultimately denied, you don't get to refile under that same cap number. You have to register again. And if there's cap numbers available, then hopefully CIS will give you that approval and you can go ahead and try and refile at that point. Um, now, again, this is all preliminary. It's all in a proposal. So we don't have all of the specific concrete details about what will actually happen. This is sort of a general idea of, of where we see them going. We do have an article about it on, on Murthy.com that discusses it, um, and we're hoping as the comment period comes to a close and we see more feedback from CIS that we'll get more specific details about how they'll institute it moving forward. Interesting. So it almost sounds like they, the, the USCIS is trying to figure out or for employers to kind of volunteer and find out almost like they have to come up in front and sort of say, here, these are the people we want to sponsor, and they're sticking their neck out, if you will, so they, in advance, will know who you are and what you're up to if you're the employer. It's a little scary. <laughs> okay, so, Chris, what are some of the common issues being encountered by ID consulting companies? Because a lot of companies, especially ID consultants, have felt the wrath of the government and the squeeze of USCIS uh, with respect to their H-1 petitions. That's absolutely true, Sheila. I, I think right now IT consultants are, are probably the most difficult of, of H-1B cases. Uh, they're certainly getting more scrutiny than uh, basically any other type of employer. Um, we've discussed previously uh, what is what we call the January 8, 2010 memo, or the Neufeld memo, after, named after Donald Neufeld, who is the USCIS official who wrote it. Um, and that memo deals with what's called the right, con right to control, Basically, USCIS wants to be assured that an employer has the right to control its H-1B employees, even if they're at another site, if they're at a, an in-client location. Um, and it's become clear that uh, just hiring, firing, paying, or providing benefits is not going to be considered enough control under this, under this standard. Uh, we were seeing lots of RFEs on this, and you have to really document this thoroughly at the time of initial filing if you want to avoid the RFE. Um, this is an ongoing requirement, um, and among other things, you have to demonstrate that this control will continue for the whole period you're asking for. Um, so if you have a contract that's only good for a year, year and a half, it's a very possible you're only going to get a year, year and a half approval on your H-1B, whereas three-year approvals used to, be the, used to be the norm for H-1Bs. Right. You used to expect three-year approval. Um, now, USCIS uh, has to be able to determine through the evidence that you give them, uh, that the employer gives them, that there's enough control over the employee, even if they're, they're working a third-party site. Uh, some of the things that USCIS looks at uh, is whether the petitioner has the right to assign additional duties to the employee, um, the extent of the employee's discretion over when and how long the employee will work, who provides what are called the instrumentalities and the tools needed to perform the job, those are basically what you use to, to do your job. It could be, if you're an IT consultant, it could be a laptop or technical manuals, that type of thing. 
and also the employer's role in hiring assistants uh, that will be used by the H-1B employee, and also whether the work uh, that is being done is part of the regular business of the petitioner or, or the employer. Um, now, one thing that's recently been stated by USCIS is that payment of wages is probably the least important factor to be considered. Um, just the fact that they're paying, paying a salary to this employee doesn't mean they control is, is USCIS's position on this. Um, now, USCIS uh, requires uh, that all the work sites of the, of the beneficiary of the H-1B employee be identified when you file a petition. Um, if you have an employee who will be working at more than one location, for example, uh, someone who's working at their home office and, somewhere, and at a, a client's location, uh, you need to provide a schedule or an itinerary explaining this. Uh, that's absolutely necessary. Um, also, you have to have a certified LCA for each work location at the time of filing. Um, if you're changing locations, uh, you know, or, or you cannot submit a new CLA, CLA, uh, LCA uh, in response to a request for evidence. Mm -hmm. That just is not accepted by USCIS anymore. Okay. So basically, you should have filed the LCA before, gotten it approved, or I prefer, preferably even filed the H-1B amendment before with the proper LCA for the new work location rather than waiting for the RFE to be issued. That's correct. Basically, oh. you, can't change the, you can't change the position midstream is what the, what the guidance here is. Yeah, and many people who are not doing that properly are seeing that they're getting, uh, they're failing, not getting their H-1 extension approvals, et cetera, as many of you are already unfortunately seeing with the USCIS. So, Alyssa, can you, since this seems fairly, you know, very high standard, very difficult sometimes to meet, what are the kinds of client documents or mid-vendor documents, et cetera, that need to be submitted in order to try to obtain an approval from the USCIS? All right. Your, your go-to documents are going to be, you know, letters from a client, uh, the, the party at whose site you're actually working. Um, also, if there are any other parties involved, if there are any other vendors in, in this contractual chain between your employer and a client, you want to get letters from them. Um, you want to try to get contracts between everybody, and you also want to try to get relevant work orders or statements of work. Um, you know, however, we, we do know that these are not always readily available. A lot of these documents are either confidential um, or perhaps, you know, certain parties have a policy simply of not providing the documents. Um, but you're not limited to the client letters and the contracts and the work orders. Yes, they are the best. They're going to be the strongest. But you can use any other documentation which demonstrates that there's an H-1B specialty job there for you and that you are indeed providing services on the project as your petitioner or your employer describes in the petition. Okay, and we absolutely do work with people. We want to work with you know the the employer, the employee, um, or you know any vendors or clients, and we're happy to discuss this issue and this policy to work with people to uh, reach a common ground where they're comfortable providing documentation, and it's also going to help the case. Um, it is absolutely vital that this documentation be provided, not just because of this right to control issue, as as. Chris discussed previously, um, but also the duration, and that there's really the genuine job there for the person. So, and when we do look at, we do thoroughly, you know, review everything, you should make sure that everything is up to date, everything's signed, um, that you don't have it signed by one party and not the other. The CIS may discard that documentation and may not consider it sufficient.
Okay. Okay. So in that case, if this is how all that goes, can, can an employer preemptively avoid some of these issues um, by taking certain proactive steps to avoid RFEs, Chris? Absolutely, Sheila, and that's a, that's a very important part of this. Um, you want to avoid an RFE at all costs because it certainly delays the case, and uh, you know typically uh, they're going to be asking for, for documents that are difficult to get and probably uh, more extensive than are really necessary. So you do want to avoid the RFE. Um, so you want to uh, collect documents particularly if you're an IT consulting firm, uh, that document the employer-employee relationship because that's the thing that USCIS is focusing on right now. Um, just to very bri briefly go over some of the things you, you want to obtain, um, you want to document uh, your ability to control the employee, uh, right, to right to hire, uh, the pay, the ability to fire, uh, and you want to have this all in the employment contract or the offer letter, um, or ideally an employee handbook you should also submit. Um, you also want to indicate in your contract or your offer letter um, how you'll be supervising your employee. Um, will this be by phone, by in-person visits, by email? You really have to, to nail this down to, to satisfy USCIS. Um, now you want to document that this sort of uh, reporting and supervision is actually going on. So save your emails. Uh, save your phone logs. If you have project status report forms, you should save those and have them available. Um, if you do performance evaluations of your employees uh, on a yearly basis or six-month basis or, or less than that, you want to save those so you can demonstrate that you are exercising supervision over your employees. Uh, you want to document that you're providing benefits uh, to your employee if you are medical, dental, uh, various types of insurance. You want to document all this. Um, you also want to document uh, the types of tools or, or materials that you're providing to your employees. Um, laptops, cell phones, Blackberries, um, for, uh, reference materials. You really want to keep track of this to show, uh, once again, to prove to USCIS that you are controlling, you have the appropriate level of control over this employee. Um, you want to document any training uh, that you've provided to your employers because that's also an important factor in terms of showing that you're controlling your employee. Uh, so if you give training certificates or you have training schedules, make sure you, you save those so you have them ready to present. Um, and if possible, your, the in-client letter from your, from your in-client, the location where the employee is actually uh, stationed, should clearly indicate that it's only the petitioner, your employer, that has the right to control the work of this employee. Uh, and that the in-client, uh, any personnel at the in-client location, don't have the ability to assign them to, for example, a different location, uh, different job duties, that it's strictly the petitioner, uh, the employer, who has the right to do that. Okay, okay. And so I know we touched upon briefly, thank you, Chris, uh, and we touched briefly upon the issue of duration um, where we are seeing that H-1s are being approved for merely six months or a year, sometimes three months, and for an employer to spend, as we just saw, between two, three, four thousand, five, five thousand, just in government filing fees, four and a half thousand dollars, and then maybe a couple thousand more in lawyer fees, you're talking six, eight thousand, sometimes ten thousand dollars, and then to get three months, that's like you don't even have a dime of profit left by the end of the day. The question is, what can an employer try to do to try to get a longer duration of time, Alyssa? Right. 
Now, and that is a huge challenge right now because we are seeing approvals, but again, how much time somebody is going to get is becoming a big problem. Uh, you know, and again, we go back to what are our, our key documents that we want to look to: client letters, purchase orders, statements of work, and contracts. However, you know, as we know, purchase orders and statements of work generally are not for three years; mm-hmm. they may be for six months. Um, companies have, you know, business practices in place. And they only do issue these for set periods of time. So we want to look to other documentation to show that, you know, what this really is just an administrative issue. Look, this project really is going to go on for two, three, you know, plus years. So you want to try to identify project plans, any schedules, you know, that may show milestones or deliverables. Or, you know, you could even try to show that, you know, there is communication that is open-ended. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a possibility of extension. Now, these aren't necessarily as strong as having a client confirm in a letter, but we try to put together as much documentation as we can, and people, if they compile sufficient documentation, should hopefully to be able to provide sufficient evidence that USCIS can use the totality test. So based on the variety of documentation provided, the amount of documentation provided, yes, the SOW has a short duration, but really they've shown that it it really is more likely to continue for the full duration. So still, ideally, we want a letter from the end client saying the whole three years, (laughs) but if you can, then these are the other pieces of evidence. Exactly. That could certainly help. Um, You know, I mean, we could go on and on. There's a million issues, but as you know, we're always cognizant of the time. We try to keep this between 30 and 40 minutes, uh, and we're bang on time. Uh, We have an awesome, awesome team here at the Murthy Law Firm, the Murthy Law Firm, as you you probably are familiar with it. Uh, And today I am honored to have with me, as you've heard, both Chris Drynan and Alyssa Klein discuss a lot of the issues, give you hopefully some fabulous tips and pointers that can help you to plan and hopefully get a lot more of your H-1 approvals. Uh, On behalf of myself and Chris, Alyssa, and all of us here at the Murthy Law Firm, we are truly pleased that you could join us today. In today's immigration and economic climate, it's definitely safer to work with a smart, knowledgeable attorney and law firm uh, like us here at the Murthy Law Firm, we'd like to think, uh, where we can hopefully get you the approvals that your other in-house person or that you trying to do this on your own and juggle a million things, run your business and try to learn immigration law may find a little more challenging. A lot of times we actually end up getting cases where, as I mentioned before, where we get the RFEs or somebody's already received a denial and then they come to us with denials at the, the, by, by the USCIS or denials at the consulate. And it's so much nicer if we can plan in advance, prepare the case, help you, guide you, and try to overcome a lot of the problems. Um, in fact, we have an entire team here at the Murthy Law Firm, the Special Projects Department, focused exclusively on dealing with complex cases and denials which is scary because ideally you want to avoid it. It is always, prevention is always cheaper than cure, as you know, and it's true in the medical context and it's true in the immigration context. So we invite you to continue to invest and learn and be a part of our team. We thank you for making time to join us and we sure look forward to continuing to help you as you continue to thrive and not just survive, but hopefully thrive even in this economic climate. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day and enjoy the spring and uh, have a great day. Bye-bye.